Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan. And I'm Chad. And you're joining us today for our recap and discussion of Gardens of the Moon, Volume 1 of the Malazan Book of the Fallen by Steven Erickson. Today we're covering books 5, 6, and 7 of Gardens of the Moon, The Gadrobi Hills, The City of Blue Fire, and The Fate, respectively. What a strange and satisfying and absolutely ridiculous ending this book has, Chad. Wow, we, we, we have dragons ancient mummy things, ravens, floating cities, demons. We had characters dying everywhere. We had assassination attempts and duels. This is how you end a fantasy book, y'all. Even if I didn't quite understand everything that happened. You know, this is my second read. And uh, as we were talking about before this podcast, I have a lot more context because I've read a lot more of the story to put it into. So my comprehension maybe will be a little bit higher. I don't know. But even with that, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't also understand. But man, I gotta say, my first time reading this book, and I mentioned this on the first um, on a previous episode, that I, the first time I read this series, I was like, I'm really excited to read this a second time. Like, I know it's going to be better. I was so right. Like, it is so much better the second time through. My comprehension, like, I feel pretty good. Like, ask me questions. I feel like I got this. <laughs> and I know, I know the first question. I'm going to be like, I know. Who is that I was just going to say, I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to be like, can we pause and go read? Can we pause? Like, yeah, I have yeah. no idea. I feel you, though. I mean, this is my third time going through this. Uh, granted, I don't have as much series context as you do. I've only read the first two books and a little bit of the third one. So there are there are things like the the Azath house at the end of this book where yeah. now that I know about like the, the dead house in Malaz City, I can piece together a tiny bit of things. But like also maybe the Azath house will get explained in book nine or something. And, and that's just something that we're going we to talk about a little bit not understanding. Um, but yeah, I would like to talk about that just a little bit. Actually, why don't we just jump right into the recap because it's a very long recap and we should get it out of the way and get to talking about this magnificent book that is apparently according to lots of ranking lists that i looked at on the internet uh most people say this is the worst book in this series so i mean i would have said that prior to this read through but i don't know now it was i really enjoyed my read through and that ending you nailed it when you said this is the way to end a, a fantasy book man dragons and high mages fighting gods Ugh. all right let's do the recap let's do it As Tool and Adjunct Lorne approach the Jagut Barrow, Tool explains the plan to release the tyrant, giving Anamander Rake no choice but to intervene and attempt to enslave the tyrant with his sword, Dragnapur. After finding the barrow marker, Tool explains they will open the tyrant's barrow the following day. Lorne contemplates the Jagut tyrant, thinking it similar to humans in its capacity for enslavement and its conquesting nature. Kruppa, Crocus, Cole, and Marilio head toward the Gadrobi Hills. The gang all ride mules, except for Cole, who is sporting armor and is the only one riding a horse. Kruppa tells Crocus they are working for Baruch, claiming their aim is to discover what has so many crows circling above the area. Sari follows behind, unseen for now. Perrin and Tak are following the trail of Herlock, who is leaving dead ravens in his wake. Eventually, Herlock attacks. He kills their horses and throws Tak into an unknown warren. Quickben, who was watching from afar with his magic, passes on the whereabouts of the puppet to Shadow Throne, who sends the hounds. They rip the puppet apart. Lorne comes across Kreppa and his group, and not thinking clearly, attacks them unprovoked. Kreppa tries to open his warren, but can't due to Lorne's sword. Aurelio lands an attack, but is knocked out by the flat of Lorne's blade. The fight leaves Cole wounded and incapacitated, and Kreppa and Marilio out cold. Lorne realizes none of this was necessary, as they couldn't possibly know who she is, and they have not seen Tool. 
She instructs Crocus to tend to the wounded and make their way back to Jerujistan. Meanwhile, Sari is closing in on them and sees Crocus is the last one still on his feet as Lorne leaves. Having finished with the puppet, the hounds turn on Perrin, who eggs them on for a fight. Before any fighting starts, however, Anomander Rake appears and kills two hounds, Doan and Ganrod, with his sword, Dragnaper, saying he will not tolerate Shadow Throne's interference with his conflict with the Malazan Empire. Shadow Throne says he is not involved, and at Rake's request, recalls Cotillion, which frees Sari from Cotillion's influence. Shadow Throne and the hounds depart, and Rake informs Perrin he is no longer Opan's tool, then mentions Kaladan Brood could heal him. Perrin shrugs this off, and when Rake notices Perrin's sword chance, he mentions that the sword is still Opan's, and advises him to hold on to it until his luck turns. After that, he should break it or give it to his worst enemy. Rake finally leaves with Crone after she appears. Perrin is shaken by this encounter and the loss of talk. He touches the blood of one of the dead hounds and is transported into the Warren of Dragnapur, where he encounters a huge wagon pulled by those slain with the sword. He forces the Opon brother to help him free the hounds slain by Rake, then finds himself back in the real world with the bodies of the hounds now gone. Sari, now thoroughly confused, stumbles across Crocus and the others. Cole recognizes that she has been possessed and tells Crocus to take her to his uncle Mamet immediately. Lorne and Toole enter the barrow and, despite lots and lots of misgivings, decide to proceed with releasing the tyrant. This whole situation has bad vibes. On their way back to Jerujistan, Sari adopts a new name, Absalar. Kruppa and Marilio are following them to guard Crocus and bring news of the Malazan presence to Baruch. They've left Cole behind for the sake of speed. Kruppa also reveals he knows about Marilio and Ralek's plan to restore Cole's noble status. Still in the Gadrobi Hills, Perrin thinks on his intentions with the bridge burners, aiming to save their lives and to hell with the Malazan Empire. He encounters a band of Rivi, amongst them a young girl who has the bearing of Tattersail. The Rivi depart, headed for Kaladin Brood's front, before Perrin can investigate further. As Perrin wanders the hills, he comes across the injured Cole, and the two men strike up a friendship, sharing a drink and discussing their past nobility and the hardships and lessons that came with it. Ralik meets an agent of the eel, Circlebreaker, who warns him that Ocelot has attempted a contract on Cole's life on behalf of Turban Orr. Rake and Baruch discuss Rake's plans for Darujistan, the Jagru Tyrant, and Rake's motivations to return a quote, zest of life to the Atiste Andy. Rake mentions that the Atiste Andy inhabiting Moon Spawn are the last of their race, and that they are depressed people. Later, Baruch leads him to the sleeping Mammoth, who had previously opened his Driss Warren and traveled directly into the Barrow. Rake points out that the scholar might have got too close to his research and might become possessed by the tyrant. Crocus and Absalar arrive at Mammoth's study to find him missing. Mies arrives after a signal from Circlebreaker and warns Crocus that he is wanted for killing a guard and advises that he and Absalar remain hidden at Mammoth's house. Crocus is hurt as he believes Chalice de Arl betrayed him. Unbeknownst to all of them, Surratt, a Tistaande assassin, is watching the house to kill Crocus when he leaves and eliminate Opan's influence on the city. Kruppa and Marilio arrive at the Phoenix Inn. Marilio leaves soon after and is accosted by Circlebreaker, who passes on a message concerning Torben Orr. Ralik, meanwhile, is out hunting Ocelot. Whiskey Jack tells Kalam to make a final attempt at contacting the Assassin's Guild. Quick Ben cannot trace Sari. Fiddler gives Whiskey Jack a piece of his mind, saying that in denying the humanity of all your friends, you reduce the humanity in yourself. Perrin arrives at the city gate with Cole, whose wound has gotten much worse. 
Cole has mentioned he wants to be brought to the Phoenix Inn, and with nowhere else to go, Perrin agrees. A guard recognizes Cole and organizes a wagon to convey the injured man to the Phoenix Inn, just as Perrin sees something flash in Krull's belfry up above. Relic, with the help of some Otataral powder he acquired from Baruch, thwarts Ocelot's attempt to assassinate Cole and kills the clan leader, though he is wounded in the process. Surratt regains consciousness and realizes she has been knocked out by someone as she was about to make a move on the coin bearer. She vows revenge and leaves by Warren. Crocus and Absalar have moved to the attic of the Phoenix Inn in the meantime. As a surgeon attends to Cole's wound, Perrin drinks at a table in the Phoenix Inn and considers breaking his sword. Callum arrives and Perrin orders him to fetch Mallet, the squad's healer, immediately. Callum returns with Whiskey Jack and Mallet, who is able to save Cole. Perrin and Whiskey Jack confer about Lawrence Talan Amas companion and the plan to kill all the bridge burners. The sergeant uses a device from the Emperor's days to contact Dujek. They exchange updates on the current situation in Pale, Darujasan, and Genabacus as a whole. Dujek informs them of a number of things. Lorne has opened the Jagu Tyrant Barrow. Lassine plans on sending Dujek's army to quell the rebellion brewing in seven cities, and that he is about to defy orders of the Empress and intends to take on a new enemy called the Panion Seer. Perrin agrees to stay with the squad, but asks for Whiskey Jack to remain in charge. Inside the barrow, Lorne and Tool search for the Jagu Tyrant's Finest, a self-contained vessel of power that serves as a warren of Omtos Felek. Lorne's plan is to dampen the Finest's aura and head for Darugistan. The Tyrant will wake, notice it is gone, and chase after it. Lorne finds the Finest, an acorn of all things, and they return to the surface. Crocus is sick of hiding and resolves to find Chalice and speak with her. He and Absalar escape onto the rooftops. Serat attempts to follow, but is pushed back by an invisible hand which sends her tumbling off her perch. Ralic reaches Marilio's room. They discuss a potential duel with Turban Orr at the Fate. The plan is to eliminate Turban Orr so Cole's status can be restored. Ralic's wound turns out to have been healed to the point of looking like a weak old scar, but he is weak from the loss of blood. Marilio has suspicions regarding the identity of the eel and leaves to find him. Baruch also wants to meet the eel, and Kruppa agrees to arrange it. Perrin deduces that Whiskey Jack's plan with the Moranth munitions is to sow chaos in the city. Many factors are coming together to make the city vulnerable enough for Dujek to insert himself as a hero, ready to defend Darujistan from the Malazan Empire. Whiskey Jack seems much more concerned with the Panion Seer in the south than anything happening currently. Lorne and Tool part ways as she heads for Darujistan, whilst Tool chooses to remain behind for ten days to observe the tyrant as he emerges. Crocus and Absalar reach Kurul's Belfry, where they find the body of Ocelot. Observing Moon's spawn, Crocus briefly sees five huge winged shapes leaving it. Absalar points to the oceans on the moon and briefly recounts the hopeful story of Gralin, who will take his faithful away to a place of peace. Derugistan's streets are filled with revelers, as the city's occupants and its infuls of tourists begin celebrating the yearly Gederon's Eve, which marks the passing of the last year, the year of five tusks, and the beginning and subsequent naming of the next year, deemed Moon's Tears by the ancient stone disc in Derugistan's Majesty Hall. Named each year via a series of complicated and mysterious cogs and mechanisms. The wheel was gifted to the city by none other than the legendary Ikarium, a traveling Jagut who kept a trail as his companion. Its exact methods have been lost to time, but it still functions and is resolute in its task to assign a new name to each year. 
It also marks a high society favorite event, Lady Simtal's esteemed fate, a party of epic proportions taking place in her estate within the city. The tradition is for everyone to go in costume, which makes the lives of one Malazan Bridgeburner contingent much easier, as well as aiding a love-struck young thief who plans on sneaking in the forested side of the estate to visit his crush, love on his mind and a god's coin in his pocket. Everyone who is anyone, and even some who are not, will be in attendance, and the city's elites buzz in anticipation of the event. We begin this fateful night following Marilio, who meets with Krupp on the way to the Phoenix Inn. Krupp has acquired masks for himself, Ralic Nam, and Marilio, blovating about everything and nothing as is his way as they make their way to the inn on the city streets. Marilio confronts Krupp, accusing Krupp of being the eel, a mysterious entity accused of manipulating city officials and is thought to be at the center of a large web of plots and plays for power experienced recently throughout the city. But the slippery Krupp uses magic, and Marilio takes his mask and leaves Krupp, thoughts of the eel having been magically siphoned from his mind. Head alchemist Baruch, a power player within the city, and one that is possibly on the path to ascension itself, visits with Anamander Rake, who tells Baruch of his intention to attend Lady Simtal's celebration. Baruch watches his eyes shift from dun green to gray as Rake discusses the city's most powerful that will be in attendance. They discuss Mammoth's nephew, Crocus, and both Baruch and Rake identify him as the coin bearer. Anamander Rake confirms Mammoth, too, will be at the fate. The mysterious Circle Breaker, another unknown figure pulling strings at the center of his own web of the city's most powerful, makes arrangements to work as a guard at Lady Simtal's fate. Like a magnet pulling in the powerful, Adjunct Lorne arrives in Darugistan seeking an audience with Whiskey Jack and her Bridgeburner infiltrators. Lorne meets up with the Bridgeburners and gets a report of their efforts to contact the city's assassin guild and their fallback plan consisting of Moranth munitions, a few sappers, and chaos. Lorne takes over command, immediately taken back at how little she must do, and sees the extent of the highly capable Whiskey Jack's abilities as a leader and strategist. Another attack by Serrat on the coin bearer is foiled, this time by someone whose voice she recognizes. She is told at knife point that he is in the protected care of the prince. While the city's pot comes to a low boil, the Jagu tyrant Raced awakens from his many century long sleep and begins gathering his power about him. The thought of continent wide conquest sweet in his mind. He leaves his barrow and is immediately set upon by Solana and four other dragons. Crone circles high above him, watching as Raced opens his Omtos Felak Warren. His flesh splits around his body. They release their warrens against each other as Solana impales him with her talons, snapping his ribcage and breaking his body. Raced uses raw power to keep his physical form together as his fingers dig into Solana's skin and pump the magical power of his Omtos Felak Warren into her, shattering bones and boiling her blood. Solana releases Raced who laughs with glee and sets off to find his finest, an item of great power that once found will make him unstoppable. Raced heads towards the city. Lorne plants an acorn in a garden and goes in search of the coin bearer. Her intention is to kill Crocus and take Opon's coin for herself. Crocus and Absalar sneak over Lady Simtel's estate wall and make themselves at home in her forest as the attendees for the fate begin to arrive. Baruch and Rake arrive at the fate with Rake dressed as a dragon, towering head and shoulders above the humans. Rake is introduced to Orr and Simtal, but his name means nothing to them. Marilio and Ralik observe as Krupp meets Baruch and his guest. 
Councilman Orr realizes that one of the guards is the spy he has been hunting for, but before he can get to the man, Ralik provokes the councilman into declaring a duel. The duelists prepare, all the while Lady Simtal's partygoers wonder where is their host. We learn she has snuck away with Marilio, who has seduced the Lady Simtal. The dueling parties move out to the terrace, and Rake volunteers to be Ralik's second. The bridge burners recognize him, and Whiskey Jack orders the sappers to stay sharp and ready in case they need a diversion. Crocus is looking for his crushed chalice, and Krupp delivers Circle Breaker a message from the eel, with news promising retirement and an estate purchased in Circle Breaker's name in a nearby city. The message saying, the circle has been closed, his work is done. The duel is over quickly, as the arrogant Orr starts the duel with a blindingly quick thrust. Ralik flows around the attack. Two daggers seem to appear in his hands. One easily parries Orr's rapier, while the other drinks deep of Orr's neck. The second, not long behind, sinks into Orr's chest, kissing his heart. In a half-second, twice killing Orr. Orr is dead before he is aware of the attack. Ralik sheathing his blades while Orr gapes, slowly realizing he is dead. Surprise etched on his face as he lays down forever in a rapidly growing pool of his own blood. Rake is introduced to the Cabal Witch Darudin and mentions a threat close by, but won't give details. Ralik informs Simtal that Orr is dead and that Cole will be reinstated. Knowing her only connection to the city's power to be the now-slain Councilman Orr, Marilio knows her days of influence to be over in the city and takes leave of her bedchambers. Like a gentleman, he leaves his dagger on her bed and knows he will be the last to have seen her alive. Crocus, brimming with the uncertain certainty of young love, boldly kidnaps Chalice, dragging her into the forest with a hand muffling her cries. Raced is swept away from his battle with Solana into Krupp's dream, where he is attacked by Tool, who severely damages the tyrant. Karul appears, offering Raced the choice of being killed by Tool or to accompany Karul to the gates of chaos. Karul telling him that times have changed, and now mortals rule the gods though they know it not. Enraged, Raced chooses neither, escaping by transferring to another body elsewhere. Perrin and Kalam come across Sari, who is standing in front of an unnatural wooden block in a glen in Simtal's garden. She rebuffs an attack from an opportunistic Kalam, but does not counter with deadly force, as would be her typical reaction to such an affront. Her odd comments cause Perrin to get Mallet who confirms that Sari is no longer possessed, but that there is still a presence in her which has been protecting the girl from her memories, having done horrible deeds and spilt gallons of blood while possessed by the Ascendant. Mallet decides to help that entity, trusting it does not mean to harm Sari, now Absalar. Vorkin asks Ralik to come to the garden with her, whilst Crocus finds out that Chalice did not betray him, but sadly she tells him that they cannot be, their stations in society being so far apart, and it wouldn't matter anyway as her fancies belong to another. They part acrimoniously, Crocus then observes from a hiding place as Vorkin and Ralik speak to Kalam. The three are joined by two others and Absalar. He hears guild leader Vorkin accept a contract from the Malazans to kill the members of the Torud Cabal, and the massive sum she and her cohorts shall receive from Empress Lacine for helping take Darugistan without the Malazan Empire having to lay siege to the city. All then depart the forest of Lady Simtal's estate apart from Ralik, as his presence dampens the activities of the alien block a rapidly growing wooden house which seems to be growing at an alarming rate in the forest. Ralik asks Crocus to warn Baruch about the threat facing the Cabal. The Jagut Tyrant has taken possession of Mammoth and is attacking the guests at the Fate, his powerful magical attacks turning partygoers into dust as the possessed Mammoth merrily lays waste to those around him. 
he is opposed by Quick Ben and the Witch Darudin. When one of Raist's energy bolts hits Perrin's sword, the captain finds himself in another realm, where Tool is battling the finesse of the Jagut. Once Tool is exhausted, Perrin takes over. Their efforts give the Azath house time to mature and grow powerful enough to be able to take in the finesse and hold it forever. Back at the estate, Quick Ben unveils seven warrens to combat the tyrant. Just as he and Darudin's sorceries seem exhausted, Hedge appears and makes the power of a Malazan sapper be known to all as he throws a Morant munition, which leaves a smoldering crater where the Jagut stood seconds before. But before their breaths of relief fully escape them, a commotion within the crater seizes their focus. They observe in horror. Raced is still alive and well. Though Mammoth's body is a wreck, the Jagut Tyrant is still alive and is using his awe-inspiring power to piece the body back together. Perrin, still in Krupp's dreamscape, manages to hold off the finessed creature, desperately biting its face. Tool ends the fight, saying the Azath house, the structure in the garden, is now strong enough to hold the finessed. Their fight ends. Perrin reappears in the estate terrace and collapses on the ground, watching as the Azath house snakes roots over to the rapidly reforming body of the Jagut and seizes him. The Jagut is pulled deep into the roots, imprisoned once again. Soon after, the sappers head off to blow up the intersections. Moments later, Kalam realizes that this will ignite the gas supply underneath the city, incinerating all and everyone. He races off to stop Fiddler and Hedge. Perrin is briefly pulled into the Shadow Realm, where he is attacked by a Hound, but only wounded before the Hound releases him. He speaks with Cotillion and agrees to give his sword to the Rope, which breaks Perrin's connection to Opon. Returned to the Fate, Perrin leaves to go after Lorne. On his way to Baruch, Crocus notices that Moonspawn now hangs over the city. He is observed by Lorne, who releases a Ghislaine Demon Lord to go after him, while she follows close behind. Baruch and Darudin feel the release of the demon, and moments later the death of their two fellow Cabal members. Faced with the demon lord, Hedge and Fiddler have abandoned their plan and with Kalam run back to Simtals. Lauren's attack on Crocus is thwarted by members of the Crimson Guard. One of them enlightens Crocus about his role as coin bearer. Lorne escapes, severely wounded, and is quickly intercepted by Mies and Arilta, agents of the Eel. After a brief two-on-one fight, Lauren sinks to the ground, surprise written on her face, her lifeblood flows free from her body, the pain from a fatal wound steadily making itself known to her as darkness begins to close about. Perrin finds her and takes her sword as his own. The twins, Opon, appear, and he refuses to hand over the Otataral sword to them. Crocus, in the meantime, witnesses the battle between Rake and the Ghislaine demon. Rake kills the demon, then tells Crocus to go and assist Baruch, who is in danger. Baruch and Darudin are attacked by Vorkin, but survive due to the interference of Serat, who is killed by Vorkin, and Crocus, who knocks Vorkin out by throwing bricks at her. Vorkin then disappears. Cole overhears the bridge burners conferring with Dujek, who tells them that the host is now officially outlawed. He offers to help them get out of the city. Ralik prevents the injured Vorkin from pursuing the Tistiandi by entering the new Azath house with her. The Tisti decide to abandon their quest. Krupp, Marilio, and Crocus are reunited. Mallet is worrying about Whiskey Jack's leg, and Quick Ben is thinking of a scheme that will make the sergeant howl when he eventually hears of it. The bridge burners are leaving by Moranth to join Dujek's host, apart from Fiddler and Kalam, who, with Crocus, are taking the former Sari, now called Absalar, back to her homeland of Ikko Khan. Circle Breaker, a fellow passenger on their boat, on his way to retirement, observes as Crocus officially ends Volume 1 of Malazan Book of the Fallen, Gardens of the Moon, with a small splash as he wisely throws Opon's coin into the water. 
Okay, so one thing that I kept telling myself while I was reading this book, you know, I've read it a couple of times, but I think it's important for me to tell myself this, and it's important for me to tell the audience this, people that are listening to this for the first time, people that are reading this for the first time, we don't know most things. Uh, there are so many things that I had, I looked them up when I was curious about something and I'd look it up and every answer was just read and find out, read and find out, read and find out. This is a series where your questions don't have answers yet. That happens with some fantasy series all the time, but I think that with Gardens of the Moon specifically, being the first uh, volume in in Malazan, Book of the Fallen, there's just so much that we, there really just isn't an answer yet. And if, and if you found out the answer, it would spoil the fun for you. So I just want to like really level with everybody, you know, and just like really make sure to pat everybody here that's like finished this book, pat you on the back and just say, you got through this. There were so many things that totally didn't like the Azath house, the finest kind of makes sense. But like the, there's so many things that I looked up, like, like why is Perrin so powerful with the gods? Like what was up with that? Like, how was he able to influence Opan? Those kinds of things, I would look it up, and the question would be on the internet, but then every answer is just like, don't worry about it right now. Just fig we'll figure it out later. There's really a suspension of like understanding that you're kind of required to take with you throughout the reading of these books, especially this book, and especially for the first time. Like, I remember my first time reading it, I kept going back because I really like to have a, you know, fairly high level of comprehension of like knowing what I'm reading. And so I would keep like going back, like, did I miss something? What are these Warrens? Like all the stuff that I was confused about. And now reading it for the second time, I my level of comprehension is so much higher. And I laugh at my former self for being like kind of like wallowing in like despair. Like, man, maybe I'm just dumb reading these books. You, if you are having a similar experience reading this, dear listener, it is not a you thing. It is a these book things. I assure you, you know exactly how much you uh, need to know to enjoy the rest of this book. Just go with it. You know, some things will never be explained, but that's okay. You won't remember those things anyway. So, and and most of it will be explained. You know, we're we're operating in a land here that has thousands of hours of creative effort put into like every nook and corner of uh, that is filled with historical pottery. You know, there's just man, there's just so much to be experienced within the land that Steven Erickson and company have laid out here that. It's real easy to get lost in everything. So don't feel lost. Just know that it'll it's all it'll all come in due time. All right. So now that we've uh, successfully patted everybody on the back, I want to start with something that I loved. My fa my favorite part of the entire book in chapter 18. I think the first scene in chapter 18, we're pretty far into the book now. Um, it's been a journey and it's Whiskey Jack and the bridge bridge burners sitting in this room and Fiddler gives whiskey jack a piece of his mind and i loved it so much because fiddler Fid, fiddler that's a band fiddler fiddler <laughs> fiddler is really awesome you should listen to them fiddler doesn't talk very much in this book and there's even there's even a moment where whiskey jack kind of looks at fiddler and is like man this guy's kind of dumb like there's just like fiddler is presented to us as this sort of kind of dopey like explosives head he you know say like, dumb. he just says bad no, he, at being a soldier yeah you're right he doesn't say dumb <laughs> but like we're, we kind of get the impression that Fiddler is like this pyromaniac. You know what I mean? He's like found he's, his calling. Right. Uh, which is awesome. I mean, I, him I, and love, Hedge. That for, I love that for him. Uh, I love him and Hedge. But uh, Fiddler says this, and I, I just want to kind of like read through this real quick. So they're kind of talking about sorry. Uh, they're talking about like killing people and ordering people to die and stuff like that. Kalam says, 
you know, I'd hate to think that that evil was real, uh, that it existed with a face as plain as the next man's. I know, Whiskey Jack, you've got your reasons for wanting it that way. And then Quick Ben chimes in and he's like, yeah, it keeps you sane every time you order somebody to die. We all know about that, Sarge. You know, they're kind of just talking about this. And then Whiskey Jack in his in his very kind of like growly way, it's just like, all right, whatever. Does anybody else have anything to say? You know, <laughs> like while you're all like trying to make me feel better, you know, no, you're and, and, all hot and bothered. Let's get it out. Fiddler says, it's like this, Sergeant. We've seen a lot of our friends die, right? And maybe we didn't have to give the orders. So maybe you think it's easier for us. But I don't think so. You see, to us, those people were living and breathing. They were friends. When they die, it hurts. But you go around telling yourself that the only way to keep from going mad is to take all of that away from them. So you don't have to think about it. So you don't have to feel anything when they die. But damn, when you take away everybody else's humanity, you take away your own. And that'll drive you mad sure as anything. It's that hurt we feel that makes us keep going, Sergeant. And maybe we're not getting anywhere, but at least we're not running away from anything. Oh, Oh my so god. And hit him with the wisdom stick. Wow. So funny because there's like this silence and then Hedge punches him in the arm and he's like, I'll be damned, you got a brain in there after all. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so cool because we were talking a little on the I think the episode before this about the bridge burners motivations. You know, totally. like like what's keeping them what's going? What's fueling them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just thought that that was such a it was such a perfect thing for Fiddler to say, and it, it wasn't something Whiskey Jack was gonna say, which really, honestly, it endeared me to Whiskey Jack even more. Though, like, it's so interesting how this dynamic between these people and these—he's like very the boomer dad who like won't show any emotion, even <laughs> Maybe, when people are being yeah. ripped apart around him, and they're like, "Hey, man, we like know that you feel it, but don't try to." snub yourself out because the pain that you feel is the thing that reminds you that you're alive and that you're human and that there's an opposite to that pain you know there's love and friendship on the other side you know right and like and and trying to take away the reality of that suffering to make yourself feel better about the orders that you're giving or the actions that you feel compelled to take is not it's like it's almost taking away and objectifying and and um besmirching maybe like the death the, and the suffering of those people like 100 percent. if you make it mean nothing then what are we all doing out here and honestly like the reason that the other reason i like it so much is because i feel like for for whiskey jack in particular things are seeming so bleak they just lost so many friends they just lost so many people now they're in this situation and i feel like fiddler saying that was kind of like in, in the way that i interpreted it that scene was kind of like fiddler reality checking whiskey jack a little bit and saying hey like you're not alone in this and we're like we're all in this together you you're among friends like you're among your companions you're among your family and i think whiskey jack knew that obviously but he needed he needed to be reminded 100 and he and and even more fiddler was reminding him it was kind of like showing him how to lead them right he was like hey one thing don't do this because this removes the entire reason that we're out here in the first place and also you know don't he, he's instructing him on how to lead properly and sure. also kind of giving whiskey jack like oh right uh, a reminder as to the important things you know i think that that scene for me like really solidifies how important this group of characters is going to be for this whole series yeah. even though we don't see them together in this way consistently throughout the series obviously but i think that having the bridge burners be kind of like the main spotlight characters it, it seems like at least is that now me saying that obviously sure but like also this series is so epic in scope that there are a lot of spotlight characters 
But I think that the bridge burners, I think it's safe to say, starting out the entire series with Whiskey Jack um, up on Mox Hold and everything, like Perrin and the bridge burners, I'm really excited to see how all of their relationships kind of pan out because there's even there's a part where um i believe it's quick ben when quick ben is like watching for hairlock or whatever trots is there too and, and by the way naming your character trots steven erickson is <laughs> putting a mental image in my head every single time i read the name so i mean i thanks i guess damn man uh but anyway uh quick ben is thinking he's just like sitting there thinking about trots and he's just like, man, I've been in so many scrapes with this guy, but like, I hardly even know him. Like, I don't really even know the person that saved my life of, like, quite a few times, and I've I've known for years. And it's interesting because I feel like Erickson is almost like aware that me, like as a reader, like I want to get to know these people almost as their relationships evolve with each other too, because they would have to, they'd have to be flexible, like they'd have to be a certain dynamic relationship because they're this kind of i mean now are they like outlawed or something can i ask you about that actually let's get to that later let's get to that oh, later because i okay, some, cool. i want to have a conversation about sure, that okay, yeah cool. i thought yeah yeah I, but i, I like i really like the track that you're on right now i want to finish it before we move on from it what i was saying though is that, is that they are kind of like outlawed now you know like the the bridge burners are not what they were before but right these people are still here they're still working towards something so i mean if, if anything in this book was like handled in my opinion really really well it's the presentation of the bridge burners like damn like totally. every time they're on the page i just want to know more if you're leaving this book being like man i'm so confused but i know that the bridge burners are this book's like logan nine fingers dow <laughs> toll sure. grim dogman yeah. three trees and forley the weakest you are correct i guess a like a, a speaks to steven erickson's skill that in like a pretty short amount of time we've developed an emotional connection not only to the characters but we kind of experience the emotional connection that the characters experience with each other and yeah. like how you were saying it's got to stay it's a pretty unique thing right because it's got to stay very plastic in its ability to like we can't be mourning 100% of the time no. which would happen because people are dying all the time around us or being transferred to other groups or something so it's like just the nature of their life being so like fragile Agile means that they have to kind of treat each other with like an indifference, but at the same time, the thing that they're going through is so like horrific that it brings a, out a certain like depth of camaraderie and like love between them that he just captures really well in like a very short amount of time. Before this uh, episode, I was listening to a reviewer online and he DNF'd uh, it and he did not have very many good things to say about it. And I won't get into what he was saying very much, but one of the things that he said that kind of struck me is, and I wanted your opinion on that relates here is he said that this is very much a plot over character story. And that it was like only all about the plot was driving everything. And I couldn't disagree more, even though I get what he's saying. Like there's not much time spent between each individual character, but the emotional pull and connection, I feel especially towards the bridge burners have coming off of, like the last page of this book was so much so that I like I, I can't think that it's a plot driven over character driven book. Like the characters are the mo most important thing. I mean, that's like the whole point that Fiddler was making is the characters are the most important parts of this book. And it would be totally pointless without those relationships. Uh, so I, I disagree with that also, but I think I can I can see where someone is coming from if they were to say something like that. There's a lot of highs for a lot of these characters, um, like emotion-wise, you know, um, development-wise, a certain thoroughness with their spectrum of emotion in like these short 
like a cute bursts almost. And yeah, I think that, okay. but also there's, so there's that for some characters, it does that very well. So I do think that there is some very good character work done here, but I also say that the book is definitely kind of straining under the weight of this many POVs. And I think that well said, like maybe that might have something. Cause I think that like, like Ralik Nam, while I think uh, is a, is a badass character. I don't really like, know the guy marillio right. like i don't like cole kruppa or, or uh, cole you know I, we got i feel pretty good about kruppa but Kroll, what i'm saying uh, though Kroll. is like uh cole i mean cole actually i guess he just wasn't involved in the last part of the book really it's really it's weird though because like like what i what i said though about like kind of like these acute like bursts of like you're really opening up and seeing somebody it's like when when perrin and cole are talking in the gedroby hills and Cole opens up about like why he doesn't have a noble no, nobility status anymore and like what happened with his right. wife and everything. I was sitting there reading like, damn, that's like the worst. That's awful. Like, oh my gosh. And then I could really understand why he he was as as shaken up and drinking as much as he was. And you know what I mean? But then it's like, also though, why are Ralik Nam and Marilio this intense about getting him back to, you know what I mean? Like, are, like, why are they this good of friends? Like, we didn't really like dig into that very much at all. You know, I mean, maybe like, no, I don't really know anything about their history. I mean, Cole, <laughs> as far as my my read went, like, I was surprised Cole went along to the Gadrovi Hills at all. Like, I, it seemed a little lopsided. It seemed like he was just kind of like uh, uh, tossed in there a little bit. And I think that there's a few instances of that. Uh, t- t- I'm kind of segueing just a little bit away from that point. Uh, if that's okay, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, that, uh, that, I, that's totally fine. Because I, I disagree with that sentiment, but I mean, it is very plot-driven, but I think that there's some really amazing character work right. here as he well. He also but, didn't finish uh, the book, so I'm not like taking his word for a thing. It just struck me as odd that he said that, you know, and I wish he would have finished it. Another thing, though, that's kind of like related to the the Cole thing, I think that some of Erickson's, and maybe it's just, it's just this book, because I remember Deadhouse Gates being just overall a much better book than this. Not saying yes. this is a bad book, but it's just much better in my opinion. You have to but, keep in mind this was adapted from a screenplay too, sure. right? I mean, I think that I think Erickson in this book specifically, I think that he kind of stumbles when he's trying to kind of give us like these these kind of like moments of like, aha, like isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's like a, a really good example of this is um, the demon that uh, Anamander Rake fights at the end of this book. <laughs> sure, man, like what a from out of nowhere, you think he's gonna be fighting the Jagged Tyrant? No, no. <laughs> I thought that was a little clumsy. Like I thought that was a little bit like because and, and the reason I was I'm saying the word clumsy is because I and I'm I'm really not trying to rewrite this. I think that it would have been a lot better though if there was some foreshadowing for this demon. If there was some, then it wasn't enough for me to remember it. Like it wasn't enough for me to really latch on and wonder like what is Lauren about to unleash apart from this Jagger tyrant. It's like you know, Taste like, God. It's it's just this sort of weird thing for Anamander Rake to battle. And it was cool, but I thought it would have been cooler if it had been built up a little bit more. Like even the part where Lauren unleashes it. It's still just like, what the hell is this exactly? Like, you know what I mean? And it's just, that would have been a really epic battle if I knew what the hell that thing was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yep. a big dragon Anamander Rake fighting, because I want stakes. Like I want, I want to almost think Anamander Rake can't beat something. Like build it up a little bit. Like, because if Anamander Rake was fighting the Jakku Tyrant, that was built up. That would have been really right. badass. You know what I mean? But maybe there's some, you know, with all my critiques, maybe there's some kind of, reason <laughs> it's always like some kind of reason why we don't know you know so whatever yeah i mean 
I, I totally get what you're saying and I don't necessarily disagree. You know, like, am I a glutton for like awesome action and demon king of the dragons, apparently, and Amanda Rake, like fighting off this demon lord thing? Like, it was pretty awesome. But at the same time, like, you're right. It came out of nowhere. The only like little hinty hint we had about the Galane Lord was I think Tayskrin mentioned that it was like the most powerful of its kind or something. Um, and he was the one who if, gave. Sorry. Even if it's. Even if it's magic, no, it's it's nothing, dude. <laughs> it's nothing. Like Evan, and if it, you look here on page 216, it clearly says this one time on this. No, it's not enough. Sorry. Not for and that. It battle. seemed a little overkill, too, because she did. She OK, correct. Actually, maybe you can help me on this. Did she when she released it? Was it like go get Crocus or was it? trying to draw away Anamanda Rake. I don't remember. I don't know either. The drawing away of Anamanda Rake makes more sense to me because she could just kill Crocus, it seems like, pretty easily. Um, though I do remember Crocus running off and her like shattering the thing and being like, go, you know? And then Crocus had that thing bearing down upon him and Anamanda Rake was like, da-da-da, I'm here. And I, you're right. It is kind of like a false, aha, gotcha, because it would have been cooler if Rake would have fought the thing that we were all scared of that like could subjugate entire continents we had all the backstory on instead it was like no no that thing's already dead at this point we've already <laughs> defeated that thing we have this new threat that could just totally wipe out the entire um city though i thought you know there's elements of it that i really like though about him like clearing the city streets and stuff and just like holding dragnapur out in front oh can we can we go down to the dragnapur rabbit trail a little bit here i want to really quick do we have I wanna, a period I on that or mention, no? well i want to i want to talk about lauren just a tiny bit because because we were mentioning uh, characters, we were talking about characters, and I think Lauren is a really good character. I like Lauren. Great character, a lot. Um, especially that moment where she kind of like Tool is kind of like, you know, here's everything about the Jagu Tyrant and uh, all the backstory and stuff. And then Lauren kind of has a moment to herself, and she's just like, "Huh, are we the baddies?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, she has she some like real a, weird self. Yeah. So- self-introspection along the course of her travels for sure i wanted to ask you though i mean like what do you think is up with like her struggling with her she seems to be having a bit of like an existential and identity crisis happening through this book what do you think it is like do you think and i don't think it's really i don't know if we can really extrapolate too much but i was just curious about where, where your head's at with all that because like do you think that it's it's just that she isn't like hard enough you know what i mean or no. do you think that the position is like an like almost an impossible position to give somebody? It's more on the impossible mission. This one, this is what I, you know, I don't know what Lauren's position was prior to Empress Lacine. I think she was maybe on the claw, perhaps. I don't know. I think she had some position of power, though. And so as with many structures, um, you know, it's like if you joined the military being like, I'm going to fight for freedom and then learned that we were being controlled by like lizard people or something, you know, and you're like, man, well, now I'm like fighting for freedom but i'm being controlled by these lizard people and i think a similar sort of thing happened to her where she was like i'm all about malls on empire like i obviously see the effect that the like a unified land has behind our you know chaotic borders that we're always trying to expand um there is peace amongst the land you know she sees that brand of peace a brand of peace yeah there's also a brand of like a servitude yeah, as well, right? Peace, peace is a funny word. You peace know? is a funny word, yeah. And you can <laughs> sacrifice some darn important things in order to attain it, which I'm sure the malls on people um, have. To justify but, those horrible things. Yeah, know. totally. And what's the quote where it's like, if you do, then you'll lose both and deserve neither sort of thing. Anyway, so I think Lauren's internal battle is this. She joined up the Malazan originally wanting to fight for like good, rose in the ranks due to her being super skilled, um, maybe got a little bit 
too deep with Lacine's seemingly, you know, we haven't spent much time with Lacine at all, but from what I figure, from what I can see, she has like no morality. She's like partnering with demon lords in order to attain her power. She's just like all about about the power. Me too. I would love some POV because that's what I thought about Lauren prior to getting inside of her head, you know? And uh, so I think that she's kind of having an internal struggling struggle knowing that the Malazan force is now bringing about more suffering to, and death to the world than perhaps the peace that it, the, the form of peace that it leaves in its wake. And she's really struggling being like this close to um, Lacine, especially when she had something very, you know, intimate to her and important to her happen uh, where she confronted Tattersail, who was like, she's like, you killed my parents. And then was immediately told like, you're a hand of the Empress. Now the Malazan empires needs basically um, supplant your own. And that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. Not to mention Tattersail's answer. The, I was just following orders answer that she had. It's funny because like Lorne, that's all she's really got too. You know what I mean? Right. So like like, the orders of her, empire killed her parents well and also uh it's interesting too because there's multiple parts of this book where lorne is chiefly concerned with what lacine would think like it's it's that's a whole other thing too where it's like she is still kind of like working for the empress's affection and not necessarily i I feel like you'd have to be so cold-blooded that the empress's affection wouldn't even factor into like what you're doing necessarily it would have to be like was just it affection kind of, or fear, though? It was um, just her opinion of her. It okay. Like. It didn't seem like it was necessarily coming from a place of fear. It was more like a, I've been promoted to this prestigious role and I want to keep it kind of thing. You know? Oh, um, well, it's more important. It's bigger than well, me. Yeah. And she doesn't not necessarily keep the role, but keep the prestige. It was very interesting watching her observing so much. And then I was... <laughs> really surprised um not this time because i knew what was going on i was surprised in my first read through to see that she died I so was like okay okay like what i do you know think about that yeah honestly i was surprised this time i had forgotten that she had died <laughs> uh though i think it's kind of a her kind of like almost frivolous throwing away by uh old steven erickson i think it's kind of like a it's a real good period to the sentence and the lesson that is Lorne that like man sometimes we get involved with things sometimes we find out more than we really want to we get in too deep things get bigger than our own selves and we have to sacrifice a part of ourselves and we struggle with this and this moral quandary that we have on the actions that we're having but at the end of the day war just kills indifferently kill people. Yeah, it's just yeah. gonna slaughter people and so she's kind of like the lesson of like you know what? Sometimes we struggle internally, but and sometimes it really doesn't matter because you're just like caught up in this <laughs> maelstrom of like you know like like I guess you could summarize it like shit happens sometimes. Well, and you remember know, and the like, way the way she does. dies. The way she dies is um, she's killed by just, just like these two random people that she like. Yeah, you know what I mean. She's even thinking it. She's just like, oh, why is it these people that are killing? So she's like, surprised is, the yeah, entire time because like, we all have like. Sucks that ourselves written as the hero of the story yeah, and of course totally. we're going to survive to the end we're not going to be you know random side character number three people, yeah, yeah you know and she was like oh, i am that you know and then you kind of see her questioning every decision very rapidly that led her to then and then us having that delightful little nugget takeaway of like man sometimes that sometimes it just don't matter <laughs> war kills i want to talk about another character real quick uh, just kind of like touch on him real quick because uh, i don't think he's like super deep but there's like three things i want to talk about with Ralik nam two things are just kind of 
cool. His fight with uh, o- Ocelot in the Belfry was really cool. I liked Super that a cool. lot. It was quick. It was uh, interesting. And then the duel was awesome. I really liked the duel uh, between him and Turbinor. It might be my favorite part of the book. It's just it's just excellent. Uh, I think Relic Nam was kind of like this kind of nothing character for a little bit for me. And then every time he was on the page towards the end of the book, I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? Like, this is a very cool character. Uh, the reason I really brought up Relic Nam was I have a question, and it's why did Relic and Vorken go into the Azeth house at the end of this book? What is that one of those read and find out kind of things? Because like that seemed like very did they know what it was like that? I don't. <sighs> OK, so um, don't both answer. Are, I, I don't think I'll be able to, but I can maybe give you a little bit more of like juice around it. So I think both of them are pretty wounded, or at least I know that Vorkin is pretty gravely wounded um, because she just failed in an attack on Baruch and Darudin, right? And got hit with a brick <laughs> from old Crocus. And there's the Tisti and I um, who have her blood on like their radar for sure pursuing her. So they and... were just escaping them. Is that basically? Yeah. So Rallic okay. Nam and, and Vorkin are like, we need to get the hell out of here. We stepped on, um, on Anamander Rake's toes and sure. Baruch's toes. We have okay. no safe place. Okay. So we're going to go in there. Also, um, she was really wounded. And I think the Azath house has something to do with healing, perhaps like they're usually places of like healing maybe if i could be just making that up i don't know but aren't uh they places and, without i don't want to spoil anything but aren't aren't the azeth houses like like not everybody can just like waltz into those totally right, right. so the like fact that thing... they opened to them it was yeah. like oh we're being presented with an opportunity here that is like godless like no god controls that because it's like the house makes its own thing because the house is That's... is connected to all warrens right like you can find a no don't don't spoil too much oh okay, my god okay, i'm okay. so sorry I, I also wanted to like break a little fourth wall here and say everybody um the azeth house we just don't know what that is right now like it's just it's just a thing we don't know what the hell it is like and, and nor do ex- i know if we will ever know I, it's expanded on a tiny little bit in Deadhouse Gates uh, at the very end of the book, I believe. I only read Deadhouse I mean, Gates once, but there's. I like, know the lore of them. I just don't really know. Sure. Like, oh, let's just let's just put a pin in that right now because, like, it sounds like they were trying to run away from the Tistandi. That's cool. We don't know what the hell an Azath house is. They were presented with an opportunity that was definitely better than their current state and more safe. Who knows where they'll come out? And uh, they took it. I don't know if I can even really speculate at all on what an Azath house is, apart from. It's like some sort of repository of of a lot of power. That's like the only thing I've got right now. Um, speaking of magic, though, um, one thing that I had a lot of trouble with, and I'm not going to expect you to really explain this away because uh, maybe we need to find out later, but uh, just a notice that I had. The Jagu Tyrant being in the Omtos Felak thing, there's like the Telen Warren next to it, so like the like Telen MS can like access it because they're like sure. related elder magic and like sure i was just like all right they know more than i do about this so i'm just gonna let but then also the reason i brought that up now i'm gonna shift over to mammoth if you think about the warrens like a charcuterie plant no i'm just kidding <laughs> oh my God, please don't please stop man don't do this to me man though um, i do i do have some insight if you wanted to know but i think let's, it's let's save it for spoilery bit, i think it's but... spoilery so you shouldn't actually we shouldn't get into it i want to talk about mammoth because uh there's a moment where um he apparently delves too greedily and too deep uh he he sent it a little too hard he took too big of a hit of his own magic which is like earth magic which like he was apparently able to like 
tap into like the Omtos Falak Warren or something and like be in the barrow when like okay so and I don't know if you're listening right now you're like that sounds confusing yeah it really is um <laughs> yep. that's my best understanding of it so my question though is like Mamet seems like a fairly smart person why would he do that like if there was even the uh, the chance if if a jagu tyrant is this legendary and this scary why even attempt to get anywhere near that warren with your own warren like it just seemed really weird like it seemed really silly to do that um and then obviously at the end of that chapter adamanda rake is just like pretty sure that guy's gonna get uh possessed you know and then obviously he does so it's it's like i don't know that just seemed weird can you explain any of that or is that just like a thing that happened i mean i think his only really you know, he was assured by Tool that he would be able to, like, enter his deep priestly meditative state and remain unnoticed by the Jagu tyrant. And I think it's because this the, the game that they're playing, the stakes are so incredibly high that, like, yes, he could, if he gets noticed, he will be, like, subjugated and killed, like, horrifically immediately. Or possessed. Uh, or possessed. But it's, like, kind of worth it because the stakes are so high. If that thing, he needs to know what that thing's doing. If that thing like decides to, I don't sure, know, be more clever guess, than just go out yeah. and start causing havoc, he needs to know about it so he can do something or else it's going to take over the entire continent and subjugate the world, you know? That's the only thing I can think of. I think that's a pretty satis- satisfactory answer for now. And he was a high priest too, so like lots of arrogance. I have another notice here with regard to the Jagu Tyrant. And uh, tell me if I'm, tell me if this sounds a little off base because I'm just getting spacey with it now. You know, like, this book just made me think a lot. I think that what Erickson is trying to do, among many other things, with the Jagu Tyrant and with Lorne's um, thought, thoughts and ruminations about the Jagu Tyrant, in my mind, what I think Erickson is trying to do is like this, this ultimate showing over telling kind of situation. Right, like like Where, why we have the Jagu Tyrant at all in this story? Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so, perfect. Uh, there, yeah, no, there's I'm, I'm there's many reasons for having the, uh, the Jagu Tyrant, but I think one of the reasons is to show us that what's going on right now in this series is but a scene in the long, long film that is the history of this of these continents in this world. And so the Jagu Tyrant is presented as like this thing that was so horrible, just so powerful because it was taken out by its members of its own race. Right. Exactly. It, it's it's it was so, it was the most powerful thing back there. It was like the Dark Lord of that. Totally. Time. You know what I mean? Uh, and so and obviously it would be if it was awake again, too. <laughs> but like what I'm saying, though, is like I think that this is Erickson's way of just kind of showing like, look at all of this horrible stuff that's happening right now. And then 300,000 years ago. A bunch of really horrible stuff was happening too, and a bunch right. of things between those times was happening. You know, it's like hammering the like indifference of it and all. I thought, thing. dude, I think it's absolutely brilliant the way that he did that because it, it was like it was a way of putting the scope and perspective, yeah. the scope into perspective, just by saying how terrible this thing was and giving you a time frame for for it. And it's it was just brilliant. I think it was just like masterful. Uh, fantasy writing right there like that's top-notch shit right there man like it takes that... the story and it exists off the page yep. so well Absolutely. after that point three hundred thousand years off the with page, a few you know? words with a few choice words like that is that is some mastercraft world building right there in my opinion so i just want to shout it out because like in the first book we're getting that kind of stuff and like i think it's important moving forward with malazan to really keep in mind the amount of cultures the amount of time the amount of uh different 
uh, races and hours at play. Yeah, exactly. It's just like mindsets, you know, and the amount of Mm -hmm. time that's like gone by the amount of uh, evolutions and, and turnings of different wheels of time and eons, you know what I mean? Like really keep it in mind while we're reading all of this, you know, because keeping the scope in mind, just just adds to how freaking epic everything is you know 100 percent, and it's hard not you like are like forced to keep the scope in mind because of the things like the jagut tyrant are hiding under every rock as far as like the age and depth um and amount that they exist outside of what we're told in this book um and to take your step a little farther it reinforces the theme of there is good and bad within every army, within every group. No, no, there is no like good guys and bad guys, right? Because the Jagu Tyrant, who is he in, uh, imprisoned by originally? His a squad of his own people who came along and was like, "Hey, what you're doing to these people are not cool." And then they put him in the barrow and, and trapped him for all time. So he was taken out by his own people. Which there's a lot of one side having both the powers of good and evil and like look at the malls on empire perfect we've got the whiskey jacks crew they're good we've got less seen probably not great summoning demons and stuff like that um and but then also, in a, though you know what i mean it's like let's let's read some more books let's see some more right right to all of this oh and we will and so uh with the jagu tyrant there's i honestly think the main reason is because he, he steven erickson wants to have Krupp tell us this vital, I think, bit of information that I think I missed on my first read-through. He's explaining something to the Jagrut Tyrant. And, no, 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 excuse me. It, it might be cruel. I don't remember who says this to the Jagrut Tyrant, but he says, <laughs> um, this is not a time for gods anymore. It used to be where the, the mortals worshipped the gods and the gods were in control. The mortals are now uh, in control. And oh, and not only ascended, but they're actually in control because the gods need the mortals like um, in order to get their power from them, like worship and stuff. And so he's like, no, the times have changed. We're now in a time where the mortals are in control, though they haven't figured it out yet. And I think that that because like that changes the ascendants from being like power manipulators to like desperate graspers. It's what you it know? feels they're, like. No, seriously, yeah, and that's what dude, it feels like. It, yeah, it, feels it frames like they, them perfectly. It, well, and it's interesting because like they're they're not immortal. Like ascendants no. are just extremely powerful. Right. But that's not enough though. Like yeah. especially like when I don't man, like the, the ascendants and everything, like that is a whole other it's like you could just have all of this without any of the ascendants. But the fact that like there's this whole other game being played. Oh, that's almost well, too and, much and man. The fact, like, i'd be so stressed out if i was these people oh think like, about it if you're like whiskey jack right like you don't even have any powers and you're surrounded by like things like anomander rake like it's like crazy that he that the bridge burners are still able to have an effect at all when things like dragon solana and uh, anomander rake are walking around all the time you know it's like it's just a cool again just people it reminds me almost of like like proxy wars you know what I mean? Oh, Where yeah. It's like there are, yeah. There That's are like, a huge theme. So, like in, so even in, in the world that we live in right now, there's proxy wars happening constantly where, yes, there are there are two sides or maybe even a few sides to a certain conflict, um, but there are, shall, for lack of a better word, larger, more powerful actors at play behind the scenes who also have like this kind of, like they're still, like they're vulnerable in their own way, so they're they're stretching themselves also oh, they're like terrified of their 
vulnerability because they know the power that they will bring and what the other side their equals will bring so with that perspective in mind which in and i and i would i would put this forward and say proxy wars are sad more sad than regular wars almost because it's like uh it feels almost like in malazan with the with these ascendants having the designs that they do it almost feels like this sort of ants on an anthill kind of you know what i mean like it almost feels like this kind of fruitless like pursuit of empire and and non-empire uh right. anti-empire you know what i mean like it's it's well that's i'm really excited to see how this all like kind of develops you know and that brings us back to where we started with krupp saying or i don't know if it was krupp whoever told the jagger tyrant that now is the time for mortals right because it's not only that there everyone is a pawn being used it's like you're not only pawns being used but you're actually you're actually queens being used by desperate things that are saying they're more powerful than you but really the you have the power you know and we might even argue in our own world like you know if those um if if the proxy countries were to rise up perhaps they have more power than they are aware and uh and shouldn't allow themselves to be pushed around by forces that are really afraid of their own might right to uh to kind of turn the conversation over a little bit i really like that part that we just talked about but something a little lighter fare while we're in between courses here I still want to talk Dragnapur sometime. Oh, we're going to. Don't worry. Okay, um, cool. I, I really, one of the parts of this book that I was just kind of like, I, 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 I rolled my eyes a little bit and I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. Why not? Was when Whiskey Jack just like calls Dujek with like a bone hand thing or whatever it was. Okay. Man. I had like, to reread that. I was like, what just happened? So. I don't know about Calls that. Calls him on the bone, Telly. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I, I thought it was a cool scene for sure. Um, I thought that was like some pretty weak sauce, honestly. Like I think that now, okay, so I am not Steven Erickson. I'm not going to pretend to know this, this man's mind, but I have a feeling he was sitting there typing out old models on Book of the Fallen and he was like, I need to get a lot of information to Whiskey Jack, and I need to get a lot of information to Dujek, and they are not in the same place. So, well, he was like, "Well, the Warrens—they're—they okay. so, kind of yeah. connect things, right? We can just punch a hole and have a bone exactly. bone and Warren." It's fine because, like, I'm not even—I'm not sitting here saying it should. Antosponak. I just thought it was like the act of reading that scene. You know what I mean? It wasn't me saying like that's stupid; it shouldn't work like that, or whatever. It's just like while I was reading it, I was just like, "Sure." He's got bones that he talks, whatever. I, I guess. guess, yeah, all but, right. Because I mean, the thing that kind of dampened it, dampened it for me a little bit was I reminded myself that, like, Quick Ben had been able to, like, watch Hairlock through his own magic and stuff. So there is some, like, remote stuff. There's a certain precedent for it, but I just thought it was, like, kind of silly because it was like, oh, yeah, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Like, you know, it's like... A right, self. we should have had just... one more of those conversations maybe earlier, like, overheard that technology maybe. or something because it, was, it, it was did kind of, like, phone. whoa. It's basically yeah, yeah. a cell phone. Like it's it a was the phone. same as the demon in the bottle. It was like, and I guess we got demons in bottles. Okay. It's fine. It was like, that was really the only part of, well, not the only part. That was like the biggest part of the book where it really kind of like took me out. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so stupid. All right, guys. <laughs> but you know what? Also, uh, when you got magic, you're allowed to magic. So magic away, you know? Dude, magic away. And uh, those people like Dujek and Whiskey Jack really, the, the, that conversation, the it was like such an important conversation. Like, it had yeah, happen. it really was. Like, it, oh, it it's really gonna shape. To yeah, a lot. Yeah. Can I ask you, um, without you spoiling anything, um, 
should I really be concerned about this Patty and Seer thing? You know, that's just going to have to remain to be seen. Okay, cool. Because Whiskey Jack definitely, there's like a part where Perrin was just like, I'm freaking out, man. Like, this is fucking crazy, man. And Whiskey Jack was like, yeah, totally. But like, wait till we get to that genocidal maniac. You know, like, it's <laughs> like, this is just a staging ground, man. Like, we're just trying to get Dujek in here so we can deal with this problem. You know, um, what, what I would really like to see, and we're not in quite in the prediction area of this episode yet, but I, what I do want to say what I would really like to see is Dujek and company, whatever company is still available, team up with Kaladin Brood. That would be really cool. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I want more Kaladin Brood. Um, I want more Anamander Rake, and that's a good segue into Dragnapur. We should talk about Dragnapur. Nice. We should talk about An Anamander Rake, if you can do that right now. Totally, totally. And I just can't speak too much more on the uh, Panny and Seer, um, but right. you will learn more about him. And man, there's some delicious world building uh, in there if I if my memory serves me properly. Yeah, dude. And I really want to see Kaladin Brood and Anamander's interactions a little bit more because they seem pretty bro, but like I know that that wasn't also always not, the case. Though. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It seems like, like a relationship out of. Um necessity almost and like i mean sharing... kaladin brood was caught by anamander rake using crone to spy on him and 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 anamander rake was like don't do that and he was like whatever <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the sword let's talk about dragon okay uh what, what what did you want to talk about okay so this i can't believe that we didn't talk about this on the last episode because like typically when we were reading just like the small chunks of the book which i really like this format actually um kind of allows me to like take my time and i started yeah. like two chapters before or the end just because I wanted them to connect real well in my brain and kind of have them be fluid and I can't believe that we forgot to talk about like I guess what would be the epilogue of the last book sure. <laughs> which was Assassins I believe there is a conversation between Baruch and Anamander Rake where Baruch hears like the creaking of the wagon and remember Anamander Rake's originally he originally came to Darugistan out of revenge, right? He wanted to get the the mages who fled from Pale. Um, he wanted their heads. And there's a really interesting conversation that they just breeze right past that I just am I'm mad that we didn't catch it, or at least there was too much in our brains that elsewise. But Anamander Rake says, <clears throat> or he thanks Baruch for their heads, and he asks them if they came easily once it was explained to them. And Baruch says, yes, once they learned of the situation, they came without any trouble, which means these people gave up their heads willingly. So what does that tell us about what, like, what was the alternative? Well, to be hunted down by Anamander Rake, right? And so what does that tell us about Anamander Rake and like this weapon he's maybe using? Yeah, I don't like, know. Like it would be better yeah. to give up your head than to be killed by Anomander Rake. <laughs> because, so my understanding, correct me if you can. Yeah, I want to hear what don't... you think of Dragnapur. It's going to get a little dark, but like, I think sure. that, uh, I mean, Dragnapur obviously has the ability to send the people that it kills, at least their consciousness or their soul, into a place of, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it torment. It doesn't seem to really be torment. It seems to be kind of like everlasting like almost like a Sisy sisyphusian type thing like it seems to be i don't like know a, what that word means but i feel like pulling a cart forever would be tormentful the, the guy like pushing the the rock up the hill you know what I oh mean? Like, oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Dude, and i don't even i don't even know good, that's a good word. reference right there <laughs> no that's a fucking, sounds so smart anyway 
I like Albert Camus a lot. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't seem like Anamanda Rake is sending people to a a hell of sorts. Like I, I don't, and maybe he is, but it doesn't seem like it's that cut and dry, in my opinion. Like it seems like there's more to this realm of Dragnifer than than just like sending people there to suffer indefinitely. Now, are they suffering? Maybe for sure. It doesn't seem like a great place. What is the reaction of like every character when they hear the creaking of the wheels sure, and the no, moans fear, of fear. the slaves? They, they do there's not like, like it. it's not Believe a good me. place. I'm not. Is saying it the it's burning a good place. cauldron of hell? No, but like, yeah, yeah. But there's, it seems more complicated than just Anamander Rick sending people to go suffer. If that is it, then I'm wrong. But it seems different. It seems like that sword was made for a different purpose, like a more nuanced purpose. So that's just like how I'm seeing it. But I think it's because I like Anamander Rake. Totally. <laughs> and I don't want him to be a guy that sends people to eternal torment. So maybe he does. I don't know. That'd be shitty. I mean, did, but, maybe he's one uh, of those people who like carries the weapon because he knows in anyone else's hands, it would be a thing of even worse evil. Maybe uh, I'm not saying that that's why I just am guessing, but uh, we also got to, to kind of complete that story of what we've learned about Dragnapur. Perrin goes in to Dragnapur yeah, and yeah, has yeah. like a whole interaction in there because right? he kills or, or Anamander Rake kills two of the hounds and then Cotillion is like is there anything that we can do and Anamander Rake is like nope <laughs> and uh, and then he leaves and um, Perrin's like wow that was crazy and then he goes over to the hound's body and he gets some of its blood on his hands he's like oh no and then he gets sucked into this place where there's a creaking wagon that is bigger than any he's ever seen filled with 20 feet tall yeah yeah, and there's hundreds if not thousands of creatures beings maybe ascendants that were defeated by anamanda rake um chained up that were defeated pulling this wagon the sword yeah that's what what better said yeah and i mean anamanda rake i think is possessed for a long time but who knows who had it before (laughs) you know but who, yeah, you're, you made a great point. Uh, and so he goes in there because he like, he feels for the hounds. He now knows like these hounds are trapped in here and Amanda Rake said there's nothing we could do. And he's like, man, no, like he feels bad. He has kind of like a weird connection with the hounds, which we can talk about, which I don't know if I have any insights, but he kind of has like, he's kind of like broing with them a little bit for sure. I don't understand that at all. Like, I mean, I, like, I think he I stabs understood. one and they're like, we should just talk. Bro. I mean, like I like talking about Annabelle Rake and Dragonpur and stuff, but I think talking about parents experience in that realm would be good to kind of clear totally. some stuff yeah, yeah, up that's or at what least that, Yeah, to. totally. Um, so, yeah, that's where uh, I'm going. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, so I want to clarify a couple of things. All the chains um, are leading into a sort of like abyss, like some sort of like void, right? Totally. Which is also fucking weird. Uh, so, and, and that's where the hounds go, though. Yes, yeah. But it's because Parents is successful. He frees those hounds. But does he, though? Well, does he? Does he? He does, but does he? He frees them, put them in a worse place. Well, yeah, where, right, right, yeah, I would, yeah. I would hang out there. I wouldn't even like, but maybe not. I don't know, because like it's. I mean, like, these are these are creatures of there. freedom, and they're like chained now forever. You know, they were pretty miserable about it. Yeah, but why do you free everybody? How come it has to be the hounds? Like, because he was only responsible kind of for the hounds, even though he wasn't responsible for them. But yeah, so he goes in there, frees them, and then he like does and his sword starts like bucking in his hand his sword is like obviously like very much tied to wherever he is and whatever he's trying to do right not but it's not it's like <laughs> sorry i like stumbling over my words it's like it's opon's thing though that the sword the sword is opon's chance chance yeah yeah i mean it makes sense well no chance isn't opon's the influence that opon 
has on chance is Opon's. And then I think the sword becomes Opon's sword, even though Perrin has been released from Opon. So do you think it was That's... a mundane sword originally? I mean, it yes. calls it a mundane sword, I think, but like I think, I... It, I think it was. I think. Then how did it hurt the hound? Perrin was influenced by Opon, or at least the sword was, when Sari killed him in the in the beginning of the book. Oh, so it was Sari who gave it the powers to his sword? Around. Maybe I don't. Well, know. Well, Sari didn't do it. I mean, Sari's responsible for it, uh, technically, by killing Perrin, and then Perrin showing up at Hood's gate, and then Opon showing up, and just like doing something with this see that was uh, upon i i'm i tried man like this is my third time reading this book i really <laughs> tried with upon all i can really deduce about upon is that upon seems to have some kind of apart from just wanting to sow chaos and just be like the trickster um duo which i can vibe with uh also totally. they seem to have some kind of weird antagonistic relationship with shadow throne and and um the rope, uh, Amanas and Cotillion. It seems to be like specifically towards them. I could be wrong about that. I could be totally wrong, but it seems like Opan has a stake in this game that's not necessarily just causing a bunch of chaos and messing with everybody. That's like my. Because he's picking it, sides. Well, it seems like there's two of them though. So that's the thing. Well, they they are picking sides. They they uh, clearly allied themselves against the Shadow Throne. But does it, the, the, that doesn't necessarily mean that they did ally themselves with the Malazans, though, right? Oh, no, 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 not at all. They're still a force unto, the, unto themselves. I think my first reading of this, I thought that Opan had, like, bailed on Perrin because Perrin had started to kind of, like, move away from Malazan designs. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't think it's, like, that cut and dry either. I don't think that's, like... It's just, it's just think... like the timeline of events that are happening, like, because it seems like they're all like Team Parent, and then all of a sudden, like, Crocus has this coin, and I was just like, "What the hell is going on right now?" Yeah, I think by nature of, because like the gods, obviously, you know, like again, I'm going to go back to the 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 mortals are in control of the gods, and so I think by naming his sword Chance, he kind of drew the attention of Opan, like, oh, because, like, Maybe. how do you give a god control? Well, you worship it, or you show it fealty or something, and sure. by doing so, I think it was like, I see you, and then then it, it kind of got interested in him, and then Opan um, and the twins, they uh, allied themselves against the House of Shadow, I believe, um, Cotillion and the Rope, and then the Hounds are of House Shadow, so I think that's why his sword did so much to the Hound, because it was because the sword was like a like a, blessed by a pawn, basically yeah, yeah yeah something like that yeah oh man that's like that's that's one of the things i had the most trouble with with this book and it's yeah upon like and perrin because perrin also... real confusing and they were afraid of him at the end because he had that ototaro sword and they wanted the sword from him yeah, and he was like no i'll kill you because he realized he was the one in control at the end he's like i got the control and he's like super confidently talking to them and they're kind of fearful of him and he's like no i'm not giving you the sword and he takes lauren's ototaro blade Dude, is perrin like an ascendant or something or like is I don't is he on the path he's on the path man he's on that pure oil got path a of wild life. life that's for sure but think about it he's the only one positioned to like properly realize that he's actually the mortal sure. in control of the gods you know i'm gonna keep my eye on this maybe sorry fellow yeah um i have another question here and it's why did Anamander Rake release Sari from Cotillion's influence? What was that about? 
Cotillion released her on his own accord, right? Well, it was because of Anna Amanda Rake, I'm pretty sure. No, she gets she's on the it's on the outside of Darugistan on the hill. Something happens and with Lorne and who what god is yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, um Shadow Throne is Shadow Throne let me just clear this up for all our listeners. Shadow Throne and Cotillion are the same. Uh the rope totally. and Amanus are the same. So it was like Amanas, Cotillion. Those are names. I thought Shadow Throne was like the throne that they both are and no, are in thinking of the, the house to. of House Shadow. Got it. You're right. Yeah. I am thinking um, of House of Shadow. Yeah. What was the point of possessing Sari at all? Like I don't have an agent on the ground. Have eyes, boots on the streets. He he obviously knew the bridge burners were going to be at the central of like these very important events, and he wanted the ability to manipulate those events, and he needed a um and uh, someone someone who acted acted on his behalf. You know. She was his boots on the street, so he didn't have to like manifest as Cotillion and the Lord of Shadow or whatever whenever he wanted something done. I also think that the, the gods are bored, right? Like, like Anamander Rake, he he like very weirdly like gets rid of the dragons. He's like, I don't need your help. If I die, I die. But and and there's a conversation between I think the elder god Cruel and him, and elder the elder gods like are does it ever satisfy you? Like cruel's thinking about, should I just go into nothingness into the chaos Warren or whatever and go away? Or should I try and come play these games of mortals again? And then he asks Anamanda Rake, does it ever satisfy you? And Anamanda Rake says, no. And so I think Anamanda Rake has lived so long that he's just kind of like looking for a good fight. You know, that's why he like went for the demon. I think, I think he seems to have also some, like he has a lot of loyalty to the Tissandy, of course. Totally. Um, you know, I mean, he mentions that they're kind of like depressed and they're they're kind of like this like listless listless people. But also, there there does seem to be kind of a thing with Anamander Rick where he's just like, hey, you know, like smoke them while you got them. Like I'm here, so I'm gonna do the stuff that I feel is right while I'm here. You know what I mean? And I can. It's he, he's and certainly the things that are in Amanda opposition Rake. to last scene. Can you tell me without spoiling anything um, too much? Like, am I gonna see a decent amount more of Anamander Rick? Is that Definitely okay, yes. Cool. I would really appreciate that because I think that he's easily one of the most interesting characters. I still don't know how I feel about him. Totally. Yeah, he's a he's a mysterious and like why is he I'm not sure of his motivation still. I don't know really. And I think but I think that I kind of I think I'm right on a, a large sense with the gods that a lot of their motivation is like curing their boredom. Are the ascendants like really old people that have been like like Anamander Rake or are some of them kind of like people that that we've already like maybe heard about like the emperor or like uh you know what i mean like are are there like don't answer this if it's i just realized i, I don't know the answer but i okay. have a guess but that's not like, that's not a spoilery i'm just like it's like now now i'm just like wondering was like was like the old woman in the beginning of the book that that got hit like is she an ascendant now is she like one of a like how quickly can people become ascendants is like my question because it's like we hadn't seen upon yet like, what if that old woman was like the woman Opan lady and she had a brother? That's what I'm saying. Right, it's right. Like, like, with the ascendance, it's like, how long does it take to get there? And are well, we seeing people that are kind of like cycling through that? Right, like on the path? Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I, I think yes is the answer to your question. I mean, I think that the ascendancy happens 
and I think for most, it probably takes a long time, but for some, maybe it's really, really fast or something like stumbling across the, uh, like the genie's lamp from Aladdin or something. But I think ascendancy happens when your power exceeds the limits of your mortal body, meaning you like now live forever unless you're defeated in battle and like ripped to pieces. And perhaps you like, you, your your power exceeds your your own mortal coil, like the Jagut Tyrant, right? It's sacrificed its own body and just possessed somebody else because it's such a creature of power beyond. You know, like yeah. Anomander Rake um, and, and Cotillion, like, definitely. They strong. own Warrens. Like, they, uh, they have created or they've taken over their own Warrens, you know? So it's like they're so powerful, but I think they started as, like, a fairly mundane, like, god, you know, a creature that's just really ripped. I think the reason <laughs> I'm trying to get to this point is, like, I wonder if as this series goes on, if people are dying, if they're really dying, you know what I mean? Like, that's what right. I really want to know. Cause it's like, I think one of parents, parents dies or something. I can't remember. It's like his dad or his mom or something. Um, I think maybe when Opan told Perrin that he needed to, they were like going to take a different life than his or something. They, it was something like that. I think they killed, I think they took one of his parents. That's just my theory. Um, oh, okay. And I think that, I think that bears out anyway. Totally. Um, well, there's definitely like, realms that, if, people can exist beyond our own you know right but it's like what if there's an ascendant that's like ah it's parents dad you know what i mean like that's like what i'm right and i'm not saying anything that, like that's gonna happen but it's like i want to know that so that I, think, but I guess it doesn't matter if i know it or not, i would think I'm that that's curious. very unlikely i think it's creatures that have exhibited exhibited extreme amounts of power okay. might get offered like ascendancy once they're dead but i think that kind of like them dying is like almost anathema to them being ascendancy like ascendancy is like you've grown you've grown so much you've accumulated so much power that oh, like there's no okay there's no saying. dying unless someone like dewarrens you or something you know you exist beyond your own mortal body and so i think i think there though i think to kind of get into your question a little i think there is different ways and different places that certain souls are taken obviously anamander rake's sword is one of them that we were just talking about those souls like go in there and then all those people continue existing in there though the dog's di body was dead you know um and the crone i think is you know there's multiple references that like something there's this other presence inside of sorry that is like preventing her from experiencing all these memories or for like losing her absolute marbles because she's has has buckets of blood on her hands and she's tortured a bunch of people you know being possessed um and that creature was crone and so i think existing inside of sorry right now is like trace elements of cotillion shadow magic so, uh, Absalar and Crone. And this is all due to Crone's predicting what would happen in her immediate future when she met her on the street. And then she does some sort of spell on her, which like protects her and then maybe sacrifices her own soul to help Sari or something, knowing that she was about to be overpowered. I don't know. I'm just talking to my ass right now. <laughs> but it sounds good. No, it sounded great. So and I still think so she's good. inside of Absalar. I got a little bit confused just right at, right at the end there because I was like, I thought you meant the raven, like crone, the raven. Oh, oh like, no, the crone, like the witch. The, yeah, witch. the witch. Yeah, sorry, uh, that was confusing choice of words. Yeah, no, the, the witch is definitely um, it, like, in Absalar. Protecting, protecting Absalar. Yeah. I would argue. It's like she died right in front of us. So I'm wondering, because like you were kind of asking, like, where saying. does the soul That's go? That's what I'm you saying. Know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's so like, obviously not, there's not one uh, answer so, to the question. So now I don't trust death in the series at all. You shouldn't. I yeah, it. I don't think you should. And that's I, not even a spoiler. Lauren, I'm just saying like Lauren from what back. we've learned. You know, like if Lauren well, came I mean, back. Then... What do we know that's happening with Tattersail right now? 
Tattersail oh God, and like I didn't even mention that. Burr, what was the what was the B name of the guy that she killed? Bernardin oh, or something? Bertalan or <laughs> Bertalan, yeah. And then there was like the Bellardin, a night, Nightshade. Nightshade is the uh, Bellardin, Nightshade, and her are like coming are in some like child reincarnation concoction that's growing really fast. And occasionally we see little snippets from her eyes as like, what's this? Oh ho ho, an army. And she's growing fast. We hear like chuckles of gods being like oh yes that she's coming along quite nicely <laughs> man the tattersail thing that was a little much for me and Perrin like, even knows it right know, he says at like one point like i'm gonna go other. find you well they're like talking or not talking but there's like i mean kind of but like in the in the epilogue uh, yeah they're magic Perrin. texting <laughs> i love magic texting and <laughs> magic texting baby that's why if you like magic texting go read uh go read akatar go read akatar dude it's so cute magic text- texting so as we kind of like transition to the final part of this, because I know this is going to be a, a, a long episode here, but I think it was a good one, man. Yeah. I want to hear some of the like Evan predictions, the Evan premonitions. Like what role do you think Aaron is going to play in this? Do you think he's going to die next book? Do you think he's going to be with us for a long time? Like give me some predictions as to where the story, like have we seen the last of Absalar? Let's give me Perrin and Absalar specific. Sure. What do you think is going to happen with them? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that Absalar is out. I don't think we're going to see Absalar anymore. That's okay. a, I know that's a pretty bold prediction. I just can't She's see. She's been through enough. I, yeah, I can't see any real reason to keep her around. Um, and I think that she's she was cool. She was, a, she was a cool character for sure. And I think that her effect on the bridge burners and stuff, it was, just all, it was all fine. Even though I still don't really understand why she was even... I don't even know why sorry was even anyway. Um Absolar I think is done for a while at least. Boots on the street. Boots on the street, Evan. <laughs> um but uh, Perrin though, I think Perrin uh, at least to my mind um the bridge burners apart from like maybe Quick Ben uh are largely at least right now more secular, a little more ins- insular from the whole god thing. I think that maybe uh Perrin will serve as a sort of interlocutor or kind of like a go-between between like his parents seems to have a certain kind of like touch with affinity uh, ascendance you know uh he seems to have like the it factor it seems it yeah. seems like a lot of focus is being paid to him in a lot of weird witchy ways totally and, I, and the gods and I, maybe like brush off onto you as you interact maybe with them and i think that like know? the bridge burners don't really have that right now and they did with quick ben but he's kind of like you know not it doesn't seem like many people are that magical or ascended people are that stoked on quick ben uh so i think perrin's role going forward is going to be a sort of kind of like woo woo like person in charge character like somebody that's a little bit more tapped in than everybody else um cool but because he's obviously been through it and proved his strength right um but what i would see that's what i think perrin is going to happen it's a great guess what i would like to see happen to perrin is I would like to see him get have to go through some more scrapes and become a real bridge burner. That's what I would like to see. Yeah. Like I, I don't necessarily want to see Perrin dipping in and out of Warrens and having these weird cryptic conversations with Ascendants. I think that's probably what's going to happen. Like, but like I could be wrong about that, obviously. But I would really like to see Perrin become a little bit more like feet in the mud, blown, totally like washed from his of... rich merchant upbringing. upbringing. Especially considering, you know, this relationship that was kicked off at the very, very, on the very first page of this entire series between him and Whiskey Jack. Uh, I would like to see totally. some, some symmetry there. Uh, with right, Karen. they're like, fates are obviously intertwined. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd like to see some more of Perrin to Whiskey Jack and just everybody. I just want more bridge burners. But yeah, Perrin, um, yeah, I think that. Who do you I, think Quick Ben is? You mentioned his name and we get a lot of hints. And this book ends with like some weird cryptic things where he's like, should I say no, yeah, I'm going weird. to not. Uh, I'm going to yeah. hold off. So, what do you think is going on with him? Well, for, to answer the second question you asked, I mean, like, or that you that you intimated, uh, I think Quick Ben knows that Callum and Fiddler are like they volunteered awfully quickly to to take Absalar back. As like in my mind, I was like, why are they? Like, oh, but headed... they're just like gentlemen at their core, mm, and they're like, yeah, she's know, just man. a poor thing. I don't out know. In the, you know. I could be so wrong about this, but like, I think that there's more. She's going like the on. reason they fight. For the young fisher girl, you know, so they, she doesn't have to. I, I think know, she's like the man. embodiment of their I think ideals, Quick ben you know. Knows more about what Callum and Fiddler are up to, and he hasn't told Whiskey Jack what's going on. So that you think be... they have extracurriculars that they're trying to accomplish, getting away Callum from the bridge burners? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, I think that there's okay, going interesting, on. interesting, yeah. cool. Because like that's just like the vibe I got from like Quick Ben being like, should I tell him? Because it was like right after they left, and like I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, I love that. In particular, um, his name is Delat something. something Delat uh, Ben something Delat. Also, I think Quick Ben is a Seven play on one. Ben Quick, which is a Faulkner character. I'm pretty sure I can't remember. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but uh, yeah, Quick Ben. I don't know. Um, he he can control seven Warrens, which is like bonkers right that's like way too many warrens to control one of the high mages was like is that even possible like a high mage was saying Um, that so that's obviously special so this is a wild opinion that i'm about to throw out i'm just tossing it out could be wrong could be right i have no idea i think quick ben maybe was an ascendant but is no longer one oh cool take like i don't know if that i don't even know if that's possible in this world but like when he said his name to shadow i love that shadow throne got really upset super right? best and it's like he was already so high up in house shadow but like maybe he left because he ascended you know what i mean or Ooh. something like that and like in like that process this is such a wild theory <laughs> people in their car listening to this that have read this series like three times are just like damn evan that's so fucking wrong but like Dude, I it's just... not foundationless though like he's well, displaying signs of wild so power powerful like it's yeah. just, like, ridiculous how powerful he is yeah, uh, tattersall calls him a true master but she's also, like i should though, know you but but quick ben's not leveling cities quick ben's not in like influencing anybody he's not like he's just a really powerful mage. so i think what happened was he had a sort of fall from grace i think quick ben's a lot older than everybody thinks he is uh so i'm really excited to see what happens with that um, I think it's even mentioned that he's pretty old, like maybe out in the open, like he's like, you know, maybe not like to a tool old, but like like a couple thousand years old, maybe. I don't know Whiskey that. Jack, I'm just I'm trying to remember something. Is Whiskey Jack just like he's a guy? Just, like he's just yeah, like yeah. 50. He's just I'm pretty sure or whatever. He Like to me, he's like a 45 year old. Like when, when I'm thinking of Whiskey Jack, I'm thinking of like like an older like Kurt Russell yeah totally totally like right. an, an older logan nine fingers yeah he's like sure maybe yeah like maybe um, get, slow down a little in his old years yeah <laughs> slow down a little bit speaking of things that i'd like to see it's just kind of like how i think that things are going to progress here i don't think dujek one arm is long for this world really okay yeah, i don't think he's going to be around for very much longer just uh um, don't really like one-armed folk huh no i mean i really like dujek i think dujek is cool uh but i think that it's like the logical, horrible thing to happen in the next few books. Totally. Um, Ooh, 
Which brings us nicely to the question that we began this episode with that I was like, not now, which is, are the bridge burners uh, currently exiled? And and is the whole army, is Dujek's whole army exiled? I don't, I don't know. I think, but it seems like I think they so. are. I think so, which is like, um, maybe maybe I misread or, you know, I mean, I gotta be honest with you, man. Like, last, like, 35 pages of this book i was just kind of like all right let's get to the end of this fucking thing <laughs> like, like Dude, there's probably all the way up to the end there was probably some sentences though that i probably glanced over just because i was just ready to be done with this because I, I yeah like, me too yesterday when i finished this i think i read like 200 pages straight and i and i i rarely if you're listening and you know me um i rarely read more than like 100 pages a day like oh really Nah, like yeah, I, mean, I like, tend I, to like smash hard and long, oh, really? and then yeah. like do that less frequently. I think like on average, I uh, a normal reading session for me is like thirty-five to forty pages, but I'll do it like twice a okay. day, or like you know what I mean. Um, like a really solid, really great reading session for me is like eighty to a hundred pages. Like I, in fact, I can usually I can sit for like an hour and a half, you know what I mean. But then I get a little antsy and I want to do something else. But with this, I pretty much sat for like three hours and just kind of like cranked it out and yeah by the end of it i was just kind of like okay I'm but anyway just in a long roundabout way to get back to what you were talking about um it i'm pretty sure less seen or like dujek is just done like he's done too much he's he's too powerful yeah. by himself if you he's were like, less you'd be killing yeah, him. i'd nip killing i'd him. probably nip that in the butt as quickly as i could too totally and he's old guard too right and like that's like her thing. I don't, I don't know about Dujek, man. Like I, I feel like he's not as old guard as the bridge burners. Because and and when I say that, I don't mean that he's pro Malazan. Obviously, he's going through with a lot of these plans. But I, I want to give just two things real quick. First of all, the reaction that he has to Whiskey Jack when they're on like that rooftop about to leave on the quarrel with the Maranth. Uh huh. It was very snappish. Like it was very like it. It seemed like it had more weight behind it than just "don't talk about this now." You know what I mean? It seemed to me that Dujek was still kind of mulling that plan over. You know, I could be totally, totally wrong about that because they haven't. Uh, I mean, they've never clearly stated like our plan is to coup the Empress. That he always just shuts down sure. that talk. Also, Dujek isn't a bridge burner. No, he's not. So he's high fist. Right. Uh, and I don't think he ever was a bridge burner, was he? I don't think so. No. Was he? Let me let me look that up. Actually, I don't know. Um, somebody hit us up in the Discord and let us know if, if Dujek was ever a bridge burner because I don't remember reading that. If he was, then I'm wrong. But if he wasn't, um, I don't know. Is this? It just seems like he's. Kind I'm pretty of, sure he wasn't. I think he's going along with a lot of this kind of plan, not because he wants this power, but because he sees it as the logical kind of like impediment of this empire that he disagrees with, you know? Um, yeah. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. There's a character in dead house gates named Duiker, Uh, and for some reason I just get Duiker and, um, Dujek mixed together, uh, in my mind. Oh yeah. They're very similar. 
Man, I'm so excited to start get Dead House Gates, man. What a great dude. Book. Me too. So me good, too. Y'all. Like people listening, if you get to the end of Dead House Gates and you're like, I don't like this series, then don't keep reading this series. Like, yeah, yeah, straight up, straight <laughs> up. Um, I, I do, I can say to put a period. Sorry, I still got no, Dujek no, running no, around in my head, yeah, but to no, put no, a period no. on that, I can say that at one point he was su- subordinate to Whiskey Jack. Whether or not he was a member yes. of the Bridge Burners, I don't know. Which is interesting because I think he's older than Whiskey Jack. I think he's like in his seventies. Yeah, he he is in my mind. Yeah, but it's like I think the, there's like a line where it's like he's in his he's in his seventies, but he like he looks like he's in his fifties or something like that. Totally, like he's fact, a stout, stout um, one armed man. You know, there's so but, much more to go over with this series, but uh, that's that's um, all the notes and questions that I have. But what else you got? Let me see if we hit everything. I know we did some There's work. There's so on much it. more we could put. I mean, obviously, we could comb through the recap again and go through everything. But I'm getting a little. This is getting a little tired. Me too. It's almost. It's been, almost two a.m. Yeah, we have been going for a while here. That wraps up. My, we pretty much covered. And if we if we didn't talk about it directly, we talked about it tertiarily enough that it's covered <laughs> uh, in my mind. I enough that I put my green checkbox by it, so I don't need to relook at that note anymore. Because my notes grow so vast that like. Sometimes they're like so much. If they're everything, they're nothing, you know? And if I can't like find what I want to talk about in a reasonable amount of time, then they're not helpful. So I always put a little green checkbox to this stuff to eliminate what we've already talked. So my search query is is shortened. So a little uh, little pro uh, podcasting tip for y'all. Uh, well, yeah, everybody, that's going to do it for us here for Gardens of the Moon. Uh, if there's anything that Chad and I didn't cover that you really want to know about, we do have two Discord channels in our Discord or if we were really uh, inaccurate about something, please yeah, let us know. Or if we were very inaccurate, let us know um, so that we can clear that up in the Discord and then clear it up on the podcast for sure. Because consistency is uh, definitely our aim here, but it's going to be hard to hit that target every single time with these kinds of books because they're just so massive. There's so many things happening in these books. Just so everybody knows, uh, in our Discord, in the Book Reviews Kill Discord, there is under the Book Reviews Kill podcast category, there are now two separate channels for the Malazan read through. So, can you explain those real fast? Sure. There's one that says Malazan General, I believe is what it's called. Um, And that is, or Malazan BRK. And that's for Malazan High Fist, but that's that's for this podcast. Like, that's for the read through that Chad and I are doing for people that are just reading as as Chad and I are reading. You know what I mean? Like, so there might not be as many people in that one, maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of people listening to these episodes. The point there is you wouldn't have to spoilerize or block out the things that are where we are up in the story as far as the podcast. What happened is that there were... Balazan is a really popular series, and that's that's really awesome, Um, but there are a lot of people on our Discord who are very excited to talk about Balazan, and that's that's so freaking cool. But because there's over 10,000 pages and we've only covered 600 when people want to talk about Malazan they basically it's just blocked out text they're stymied the yeah <laughs> so what we did was we set up a another channel that's it's you know it's for spoilers but it's not exactly like what it's not for this read through it's just another and I used a, a, a violin or a fiddle for the emoji for that one so which I thought Perfect. was fitting um, but yeah just so so you know everybody um in, in the discord you can talk about uh, now Now that we've finished Gardens of the Moon, you can talk about all of Gardens of the Moon with no spoiler tags or anything because that's where we are. Now we're going into Deadhouse Gates. We're doing book one of Deadhouse Gates next week. And so if you are going to talk about book one of Deadhouse Gates while you're reading it, use spoiler tags so that people that are also reading that 
don't get stuff spoiled for them and don't talk about dead house gates at all past book one in that channel you can do that in the other channel ah that was a long-winded uh little and verbal, but it's really important you put a uh you you black out the text in discord if you're like how do i do a spoiler tag um you can do two things one you could type a slash spoiler at the beginning of the message um but the best way to do it is to put a um like a what is it what do you call it a bracket it's not even a bracket it's like the straight up line you double line double line and you kind of use those like quotes so put the the straight up and down line twice the beginning and the end just like you would quoting uh, someone talking and that will black it out in discord so someone has to actually click on that text to reveal it so it doesn't surprise anyone with spoilers really cool feature discord way to go yeah and i really appreciate the discord because like i said um these books were just so long and there's so many things happening in them that even i mean this is a really long episode that me and chad just did but totally we'll merge the channels at the end probably right yeah sure um but like the discord is awesome because like if you if there's stuff that we missed then we can talk about it in there and then chad and i don't have to make seven hour long episodes uh, because while right. we and, would and love it never to do stops. That, we, yeah, I mean, like I, I would really love to to do seven hour episodes, but I also got to edit this thing. So right, right. Uh, but if your heart feels empty and hollow when the episodes end, as mine certainly does every time, just know that the it, the conversation is continuing in the Discord. So uh, it might be able to fill a bit of that uh, hollow emptiness yeah. that you well, feel and, as soon I as mean, the melodic sound of our voices leave you. And we're basically doing like you know one episode a week. Like I'm we're down. smashing. We're smashing, dude. We're, we're smashing, we're, man. Doing pretty good so far. Let's keep up this momentum. And a testament to our listener group that, like, I mean, we hyped it for sure. We're like, if you're ever going to read these books, read them with us now. And, like, I love that people listened to us on that front because we have, like, I was a lot of people listening. Like, those episodes are getting more in the first two days than a Monday morning minute, which is, like, our our largest or most listened to uh, content. Uh, And the first, like, two days than those are in the first, like, week, which is crazy for a... 10 book long series oh, we'll probably has, get some some you know some some uh some drop off there as we oh keep we're definitely with. gonna get some churn for sure but like i don't know if we're gonna keep like that right now the hype is real oh, yeah, the hype is real um we yeah, don't anyway. have to have two discord channels that's awesome thanks guys Man, i'm gonna go though uh that was definitely a long episode and i want to i'm actually Go ahead and crack into Deadhouse Gates. Dude, let's go Deadhouse some Gates, bro. Oh, I'm Woo! so excited, everybody. I'm too everybody, hyped right now. I can't thank sleep. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you so much for, for sitting through three of these episodes with us. We have many, many more Malazan episodes to get through. Oh, what a journey we are on. Uh, but we're done with Gardens of the Moon, and Gardens of the Moon is not the best one by by a lot. So, And it's, it was really good. No. I mean, I... I thoroughly enjoyed myself. That was dude. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And if you yeah, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation this is... or got anything out of it, leave us a review because we need some right now. Please leave some reviews. Uh, man, like reading this book, reading this series with my best buddy and a big old Discord, oh, that's man. the best way to do this. Like the I can't best believe, way. I can't believe I tried to do this by myself, dude. It's, it's so mean, silly. Me neither. It was like eating a pizza without cheese and sauce, which is just bread. <laughs> just bread, man. It's like yeah, basil Open in my mouth. Bread. Anyway, yeah, dude. Thanks for being the the cheese and the sauce to our uh, our pizza, everybody. I'm I'm all finished up. I'm all talked out. Me too, dude. I'm all talked out. Well, that's never really true, but uh, I am willing to say goodbye for now, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode. Hope you have an amazing rest of your day, and of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.